and chapter 4, verse 14, and uh, reading to chapter 5, verse 10. That's page 1205 in the Church Bibles. Hebrews 4 and verse 14. And this author to the Hebrews, whoever he may be, writes, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God, a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. We keep those last four verses from verse 7 to verse 10 particularly in mind as we look once more. Uh, we are drawing towards a uh, conclusion of more than one series, I suppose, as we come to the end of the summer term before long. I think there'll probably be two more on this theme of maturity before we come to the summer holidays. But as we look at this subject of maturity tonight, what is under the spotlight this evening is the maturity, the perfection of Jesus Christ himself. And I'll put it like this. Your own growth to Christian maturity and mine rests wholly on Jesus' own growth to maturity. And so therefore the development, the maturing of Jesus 
is of the greatest importance and interest to all of us who claim to be Christians this evening. Now, what do we see tonight? We see three things. We see Jesus Christ, the high priest. We then see Jesus Christ in prayer. And then we see Jesus Christ made perfect. And all for us, all for us, and for our salvation, and our growth, and our maturity. So first of all, Jesus Christ, the high priest. Not just the priest, which would go very well with PPP for the three points, but he is particularly the high priest. Now, why do I say that? Because if you wanted to reduce, condense this letter to the Hebrews into one short sentence, that sentence would be something like this. Jesus Christ is a better high priest. Indeed, Jesus Christ is the best and the only high priest that we could ever need or have or want. Now, you may say to me tonight, what's that got to do with me? I'm not interested in priests and high priests. It all sounds rather mysterious to me. It seems to belong to another culture, another century. What's it got to do with me? Well, first of all, first of all, it's got everything to do with the original readers of this letter. Because the people who received this New Testament letter needed, more than anything else, to be reminded and reassured that Jesus Christ was their perfect final high priest. Why? Well, you see, they were going back in their minds to the Old Testament. They were looking back nostalgically. They were reminiscing about the past with rose-colored glasses and saying, Oh, for the old days. Oh, for the days of our fathers and grandfathers. Oh, for the days when we were worshipping in a tabernacle or in a temple and we were bringing our sacrifices and we brought our sacrifices and there were priests there who took them and uh, there was a high priest there who went in once a year on the Day of Atonement into that most holy place. Oh, those were the days, the sights and the sounds and the smells of old covenant worship and we've lost all that it's so colorless now it's so plain now we want to go back to how it used to be and the author is saying to them don't whatever you do turn back you don't need that old high priest you don't need Aaron and his sons you have a new better perfect high priest in Jesus if you want to turn back to the old, then you have never understood Jesus and the gospel. Now, without going into much detail tonight, let's just get hold of this point. Do we need a priest? Do you need a priest, a high priest? Do I need a high priest? And the answer is an emphatic yes. Why? Because here we all are, weak and sinful human beings, the lot of us. 
We're sinners. Don't we know it? Don't we sense it? And our sins separate us from God. That's the effect of sin. Sin brings that barrier down where God has to eject and evict and banish his creation, his human creation from that garden of Eden. Your sins have separated you from God. How can we come back to God? We need a mediator. We need a high priest. We need someone to bring us to God, someone to intercede for us before God. And this high priest must be one that God himself calls and recognizes and fulfills the criteria of the scriptures. Just look with me at the first few verses of chapter 5 here in Hebrews, and there you see what those criteria are. Because uh, the important kind of subtext here that we must say in today's generation is this. We can't just come marching or waltzing into God's presence the way we feel like doing and saying, hey, it's me and I'm here to worship you and I want to worship you this way or that way or my way. No, we need to come God's way and we need to come through the high priest that God has given us. And here are the specified criteria for such a high priest. For every high priest is chosen from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor to himself but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, there's a lot of detail in this passage we won't look at tonight, but I want us to see the really big picture this evening. Who is the best, strongest, most qualified, most suitable individual to represent us before God? The answer is Jesus Christ. But let me give it, let me turn the question around slightly. Who is the gentlest, most patient, most sympathetic soul to help you and care for you in all your sin and weakness? The answer again is Jesus Christ. Jesus, our high priest, as it were, faces two directions. He's looking towards God with, as it were, his people with him and behind him, saying, here they are, here are the people I bring. I'm looking to you, Father, and I, the priest, am bringing these people, representing these people. But at the same time, he's, as it were, turning around and saying, and my people, I'm looking at you, and I'm representing God to you. I'm teaching you about God. I'm showing you about God. I am dealing with you as a priest, as a pastor, as a shepherd. We could ask a number of questions. Who do we want to fight for us? Who do we want to advocate for us? Who do we want to represent us before God? Who do we want to plead for us? Jesus, the great high priest.
priest. No one else will do. No one else will merit acceptance and forgiveness for us. But then turn it round again. Who do we want to help us? Who do we want to care for us? Who do we want to comfort us, encourage us, nurture us, protect us, gently lead us? Only Jesus, the great high priest. You know, we thought this morning about man made in the image of God, male and female, and we said that the male and femaleness of man is equally the image of God, and we can say even of our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't go as far as to say that uh, that Jesus has a feminine side. I don't think we can say quite that, but we can say this, that the the man who fights and the man who rules and the man who prays and intercedes is the one who is like a mother to us, like a mother to us. The gentleness, the patience, the kindness, the long-suffering, the tenderness of Jesus Christ. You see him pleading, uh, praying over Jerusalem, if I could have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Jesus Christ, our great high priest. But secondly, we see Jesus Christ in prayer. And come to verse 7 of chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Now, what does it mean here, the days of his flesh? The days of his flesh could simply mean the days when Jesus was on earth. Those three and thirty years we sang about, from his birth in Bethlehem to his death at Calvary. Those could well be the days of his flesh. And these days, we read here in verse 7, were filled with prayers and supplications. That means that Jesus, as we know from the Gospels, was a man who frequently and regularly prayed. We read about him going to pray during the night and going off to pray early in the morning and praying when the disciples were on the Sea of Galilee. He was a man of prayer, wasn't he, Jesus? But this author says more than that. He says that Jesus prayed with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Now, did Jesus pray like that regularly? We know that Jesus did sometimes weep tears. He wept over Jerusalem. He wept at Lazarus's tomb. But here we read something very specific. He was praying with loud cries and tears. In what way? To the, him who was able to save him from death. And it seems that here we are entirely justified in focusing these prayers of verse 7 on Gethsemane as Jesus nears the cross. And it's true that none of the Gospels record that Jesus in the garden was actually weeping tears. We're not told that specifically. But is it hard to imagine That the one whose anguish and agony was so great that he sweated, as it were, great drops of blood, was also shedding great tears in that anguish. 
I think we can put it, friends, like this. (coughs) Never, no, never, was the agony and the anguish and the sorrow and the pain of a human soul ever greater than the agony and the anguish and the sorrow and the pain of our Jesus in Gethsemane. We might even say that all the sorrow, all the pain, all the tears, all the blood, all the sweat ever known to humanity converged on Jesus as he was praying that night, now aware so fully of what he was going to pass through the next day. And my friends understand this, that if Jesus had not prayed in that way and agonied in that way and anguished in that way and known that weight in that way, the weight of the anticipation of the cross of the next day, of being made sin for mankind, of being a sin offering, of being prepared to pour out his blood, his sweat, his tears, his toil, his soul, his life, and to give the ultimate sacrifice, this great high priest who gives himself, had it not been for that, then you or I could never be saved. We could never know peace with God. We could never be forgiven. We could never know anything other than despair. But here is our high priest, in agony in the garden for you, for me, all that we felt that more, all that we knew that more, every one of us. And what's Jesus praying? He prayed to him who was able to save him from death. Does that mean that Jesus is praying that he would avoid death? That he would bypass death? Well, we know, don't we, that Jesus did say, Lord, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But straight away there is that, as it were, resuming of his mind and his heart on the target he's got to face. Yet not my will, but yours be done. What is Jesus praying here? He's praying that the sacrifice of himself would be full would be sufficient, would be accepted, would be that grand and full atonement made so that Jesus' death really would be the death that ends death, the death that would lead to his own resurrection and therefore the resurrection of all who belong to him. That's the prayer of Jesus It's a prayer, Father, lead me through the darkest shadow that man has ever known, that I, the God-man and the great high priest, only must tread, that I may come through that bitter dark valley, but come out into the sunlight of resurrection, having been through it and paid for death in its entirety for all the people I love. That's why he does it. We see how weak Jesus is. Do you ever feel weak? Do you ever feel sorrowful? Do you ever feel alone? You do. I do. Jesus knew it far worse than you or I ever can. Didn't he? How astonishing it is that Luke records in his gospel, only Luke records this, that there in the Garden of Gethsemane is the Son of God 
And yet so weakened is he in his humiliation and his suffering that an angel appears to strengthen him in his praying. And it seems that without that angel intervening and interceding, as it were, for Jesus and strengthening Jesus and giving strength to the human arm of Jesus, he could not have had the power to continue in that prayer that night. But he did. He must. He has. The loud cries and tears of this great high priest were heard. You remember how Jesus is the high priest and the earlier high priests of Leviticus and the other books of the Old Testament. They would go into that most holy place once a year by themselves with an offering of blood. And the people outside would wait and would hope and would wonder, will he be heard? Will his sacrifice be received? There was always a question mark about that. Jesus was heard. Because of his reverence. There isn't time to unpack that tonight. But we see Jesus as the ultimate reverential praying man in that garden of Gethsemane that night. But I want to come on to the third and final point as time is going away from us. Jesus Christ made perfect. And come with me to verses 8 and 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And there might be two things here that puzzle us a little bit. What does it mean that Jesus learned obedience? And secondly, What does it mean that Jesus could be made perfect? This is puzzling, isn't it? Because surely the Son of God was always perfect, was always morally sinless and flawless. How could he be made perfect? You can't make the perfect more perfect, can you? It's not perfect to begin with if it needs to be made perfect. And how could this Son of God learn obedience, who is always obedient to his Father? Well, how do we answer these questions? Here's the answer. The Son of God has become a man. The Son of God has stepped into our human nature, has clothed himself with a human soul. Why has he done this? He's done this because he looks out on the lost human race, And he sees us in such desperate straits, such need, such fallenness, such sinfulness. He sees us as we are by nature, expelled from Eden, cast off from the presence of God because of our sin. And the only way that we can know God be readmitted into paradise, be brought back to God, is through Jesus Christ coming and taking our human form and giving a human obedience and a human perfection. Adam failed. Thus we fail. 
We are in Adam by nature. Adam disobeyed. He's out of Eden. And so are we all. There needs to be a new Adam. A better Adam. A righteous Adam. An obedient Adam. And this is Jesus. But until he takes human flesh, Jesus has not known what it is to be human. He must learn a human obedience through his whole life. First as a boy, then as a man. We read that striking account, again, that only Luke gives us, where Jesus is a 12-year-old boy uh, going up to Jerusalem and lost for three days, and there in the temple. And then when he comes back to Nazareth, we read that Jesus was obedient to Mary and Joseph, or he was submissive to Mary and Joseph. Now, let's try and understand this. Does that mean that Jesus was ever disobedient? Did Jesus ever give disobedience to Mary and Joseph? No, he did not. Disobedience to parents is a sin, and Jesus never sinned. But nevertheless, Christ's human obedience had to grow, it had to form, it had to develop. You don't say about a three-month-old baby who's screaming in the middle of the night for milk, well, that three-month-old baby is a very disobedient child. I told him to be quiet at nine o'clock, and he's screaming his head off. What disobedience? It doesn't apply when they're that age, does it? In the same way, you shouldn't confuse immaturity and disobedience. A toddler, through immaturity, will drop his cup on the floor. But a toddler, a sinful toddler, through disobedience and anger, will throw his cup on the floor in anger. And we're saying that, yes, in his humanity, Jesus had to pass through a maturing experience, but he was never disobedient. Yet he learned obedience through what he suffered. Supremely in this hour in Gethsemane. It's a striking thought, isn't it? Had Jesus ever been truly seized with the thought until that night of, it might be possible for me to bypass that cup of wrath? He was assailed there with this agony that we've thought about. But in that, he learned obedience. He was able to say, yet not my will but yours be done. So, what is the perfection of Jesus? It's this mature wisdom that he learned in his humanity. Either side of that account that Luke gives of the child Jesus in Jerusalem, we read two striking descriptions of him. First of all, Luke chapter 2, verse 40 And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. You see the development of Jesus. And then at verse 52, at the end of the chapter, similar words. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He grew, he matured in his humanity, and he reached perfection. As a man, 
What is this perfection? It's a full, mature, developed wisdom. It's a delight in doing the will of God. It is what we thought about an earlier week. It's the law of God written on his hearts. Not the human, uh, not the stone tablets. Not, not a grudging obedience. Not a, I'd better live this way, I'd better do what I'm told. But rather, a heart on which is inscribed the law of God, the love of God, the desire to do God's will. A perfect human righteousness and obedience which never protested, which never deviated, which never fell short. And all this he did for our sakes, for our salvation. This is what we read in verse 9, isn't it? And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. What's this saying? The human obedience of Jesus in its fullness and perfection, in life and in death, is that bottomless reservoir from which we draw eternal salvation. And here's something glorious. We can never exhaust the supplies of Jesus' perfection and salvation. He never gets tired of us going back to him for more and more. Doesn't John say in his prologue in his gospel, John 1 verse 16, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. But I want to just finish now by thinking very briefly about the last five words of verse 9. They have to be looked at. To all who obey him. To all who obey Jesus. What does this mean? Is this some kind of salvation by works? Are we saved by obeying Christ? Is that what it's teaching us? I want to put it like this. No one, not I, not you, not anyone else, can ever be saved by obeying Christ. Because only Christ's obedience can save us. Christ's obedience does save us. How will you, what will you say if, often people say, what would you say if you went and stood before God, why you should go into heaven? Will that happen like that on that day? I don't think it will, actually. But if that were to happen, your only answer should be this. Christ's obedience saves me. Christ's life and death and resurrection saves me. No one can ever be saved by obeying Christ because only Christ's obedience can save us. But... Hear this, those who are saved are those who do obey Christ. Those who are saved are the ones who obey Christ. What does this mean? And let me make something as clear as I can. We're not talking here about a legal, law-based obedience. 
We're not talking about somebody saying, I take it on myself by my own efforts and in my own strength to obey God's law as fully as I can. That's not what it means. We're talking here about what the older authors would call an evangelical obedience, which means this. We obey because we love Christ. We obey because he first loved us. We obey because he is our bridegroom. We obey because he laid down his life for us. We obey out of a sense of of vast gratitude and indebtedness and a sense of see how much God has loved me, how much Jesus has loved me. He has won me. He has saved me. And from that gratitude for what he has done, Lord, I long to obey. I desire to do your will. It becomes for me as for Jesus himself that the law of God is written upon our hearts, that we want from the heart to love him and keep his word and do what pleases him. That is a mature Christian, my friends, who draws on the maturity of Jesus Christ himself. Let me illustrate, taking a couple of lines from two well-known hymns of the Victorian Hymn writer Cecil Francis Alexander. Two very familiar seasonal hymns. First of all, from Once in Royal David City. You may know these words. Christian children, all must be mild, obedient, good as he. When you hear those words, what do you think? Do you think, uh, ooh, sounds a bit Victorian, sounds a bit twee, sounds a bit prissy, sounds also a bit theologically suspect? to suggest that we should be as obedient as as Jesus is? Is that true? Or take the last verse of, there is a green hill far away. Oh, dearly, dearly has he loved, and we must love him too, and trust in his redeeming blood, and try his works to do? Try his works to do? Is that salvation by works? You know what? When we put it into the words of Jesus, it sounds so different. What did Jesus himself say? Let's stand on safe ground. He said this, didn't he? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's it. If you love Jesus, you won't simply sing that you love him or say that you love him. That love shows itself in keeping his commandments. Love which obeys. Love which sees what Jesus has done for us in dying in our place. So friends, we come now to this communion table. And what do we remember as we do so? We are feeding on Jesus Christ. We need Christ in us. We need the life and the power of the one who obeyed his Father, who had the law of God written on his heart, who was filled and animated with the Spirit at all times. To eat and drink the bread and the wine is to symbolically say, I have no strength of my own, we have no strength of our own, but Christ in us, Christ in me, that is life. That is obedience. That is joy to know him, 
to be loved by him. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we thank you and praise you for this one perfect way of salvation. No one but Jesus can do helpless sinners any good. Oh, Father, we come. We thank you that this communion meal is the commemoration. It is indeed the sign and the seal of that once and for all high priestly action where Jesus gave himself body and blood, sweat and tears, soul and life for us. For in no other way can we find any hope, any good at all, but in this meal representing this death of Jesus, our Savior. Come to us, we pray, as we gather round this table now for Jesus' sake. Amen. As always, please do move forwards and centrally as we, after this next hymn, as we come to the table. Our next hymn then, Jesus is King, and I will extol him. Give him the glory and honor his name. He reigns on high, enthroned in the heavens, word of the Father, exalted for us. Let's stand to sing.